Hello, welcome to the European Football Show and the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined by three fantastic guests from different parts of Europe to talk about this week's European football action. Uh, in Hessen, in Germany, Jasmine Baba. How are things, Jasmine? It's good. I am glad we only have one more game, uh, game week left in the Bundesliga and the Champions League final. After that, I'm very much wanting a break from football. <laughs> I think we'd all do with one for sure. Uh, out west of Ireland, in Galway, John O'Sullivan. How are things, John? I'm mighty thanks, Alan. It was a crazy week of football and I look forward to chatting to you about it. Absolutely. And in the Spanish capital of Madrid, Sam Leverage. How are things, Sam? All good. Like John said, a crazy week, but like Jasmine, I'm ready for the break. Yeah, I think we all are, most definitely. Um, but yeah, there was a very action-packed week as always of European football uh, let's start with Chelsea nil Barcelona 4 in the women's Champions League final um, I think a lot of people are getting into women's football this season because of the calibre in Spain at least because of the calibre of this Barcelona team uh, they won uh, their league last week uh, after winning 26 games out of 26 scoring 125 goals conceding just 5 really formidable outfit they were going against a Chelsea team who won their own league in England uh, last week also and it was uh, very kind of finely poised before kickoff I think Barcelona maybe just slight favourites but uh, they routed Chelsea winning 4-0 had a fifth goal disallowed it was quite remarkable really uh, for an achievement uh, what did you make of this game Sam um, from a Spanish perspective I mean do you agree with me in that you think that women's football in Spain has kind of come on a bit this year in terms of um, prestige and attention and this triumph um, is definitely kind of a, a landmark moment in the women's game in Spain. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, two years ago, Barcelona in their first Champions League final and they were 4-0 down at half-time and this year they were back and they were 4-0 up at half-time. That kind of shows the progress. And this year in Spain, I have noticed it a lot more with Real Madrid launching their women's team as well. It's getting a lot more attention, a lot more media coverage. People are starting to watch it in TV, in bars, that kind of thing even. I think the concern... Mo- in Spain with the women's game might be the domination of Barcelona because they are so dominant. I think their record this year is 26 played, 26 won, 128 goals scored and five conceded or something like that. So long term, how sustainable is that for the, the rest of the league? I guess we'll see, but, but it's definitely helping to lift the profile and it might bring more investment with it and might help the other teams, the, the Real Madrid's, the Levantes, the Athletics to, to grow their own teams as well. And Jasmine, why do you make this game from an English perspective? Um, I mean, Emma Hayes, the Chelsea coach, is very highly touted going into the game and uh, kind of definitely a flag bearer for the women's football in England. Um, what do you make of how she set the team up and how they did against uh, Rampant Barcelona? I think everyone's expectation was almost slightly that Emma Hayes would, Emma Hayes's side would walk it. Um, they've been so dominant in in England for a couple of years now. Um, she's always been kind of a trailblazer within Chelsea. Um, there was there were times where she was touted for the Chelsea men's job. Um, and she always kind of talks about the quality as, aspect. And she was even offered, um, not offered, but she was reported to be linked to uh, the AFC Wimbledon job and... Uh, she kind of rightly said that why would she go from such an elite team to a League One, the third tier of football, second tier of football, sorry. Um, No, third, 
I have lost my brain already today. Um, (laughs) uh, Which is a fair enough point. If you're making Champions League finals, if you're playing with the best players in the world in the women's game, why would you give that up for the third tier of football? Um, However, with the way she set her team up yesterday, I mean, three goals down within 20 minutes, it, it, it wasn't good viewing. Um, the, if you play with those tactics, you will not be offered elite jobs, um, even in the terms of not really realising what a cover shadow was in her team, the way she made her team pin, try to pin back Barcelona so narrowly that it just got beat every time on the counter. So it was actually quite anticlimactic at the end. Um it was their first Champions League final. Um, I still think Emma Hayes is a great coach. But I think a lot of supporters in England would have been blindsided by her progress in England compared to how far um, the qualities of other coaches in other countries actually go. Especially, I mean, Barcelona have the funding to put that kind of women's team up. And I've been fortunate to know a Spanish women's player um, back in England. She used to play for Malaga and um, she was like, that sounds impressive, but with the investment there, it really isn't. It's quite low standard. So, um, you know, when we have these kind of thoughts about women coaches in the game, there's so many uh, top quality coaches that we don't, that English um, viewers don't, particularly get to see and it's to show how rampant it is and I wonder if this could be just because the bigger teams like Lyon, PSG just weren't all there this year by Munich another one Wolfsburg they're both such um, big women's teams that weren't in the final I wonder if this was just a um lucky coincidence that they got in the final because those tactics just weren't good at all. There's one player in the Chelsea squad had played in the final before, uh, whereas 10 of the Barcelona squad had played in the, in the final before. Um, and that game that they lost in 2019 to Leon, the 4-1 defeat, um, I think after that game, they had a team meeting and really kind of laid down their stalls and how they're going to go from losing finalists to winning finalists. So, Maybe Chelsea will have the same experience. Who knows? We'll see. But uh, what did you make of the game, John? And do you think that, you know, do you agree that women's football is kind of beginning to gain real credence amongst the uh, the wider footballing community in the UK and Ireland? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. You see like the likes of Megan Rapinoe, who are very vocal and have massive social media followings and are continuously and constantly pushing the message that there should be more investment and there should be more eyeballs put on the women's game and, you know, and justifiably so it's a, it's a great product, you know, more than the men's game. And it's, if if there was more investment in it, there would be more opportunities for more people across the entire world of football, whether that be coaching, whether that be journalists and whether that are players. So yeah, in my opinion, it should really happen that more people would pay more attention to it. And I hope in even the tiniest piecemeal of way us talking about it makes somewhat of a positive impact in some way, shape or form. As to the game itself, I mean, Barcelona are incredible. Wow. Um, 
some of their goals were like peak Barcelona. It's so funny how certain clubs have tactical DNAs. The way they maneuvered the ball was like a, a Pep Guardiola Barcelona team from 2010 or 2011. And, you know, it, when you look at their league form, 128 goals scored. Like I, I've had football manager saves where like I've had the best players in the world assembled. And I haven't come close to getting 128 goals in a season. So it, it's absolutely incredible. And, you know, they were... They were more than worthy winners and it'll just be interesting to see, you know, who can pull it up to them over the coming years. And Leon have been very strong in the past and so have Chelsea. But like on the evidence of this and on their league form, they're they're really in a league of their own. And, you know, it, it, it's nice for Barcelona, I guess, as a, an entire entity to have one of their arms be successful because I'm sure Sam will talk about it later. And so will you and the men's team have made an absolute dog's dinner of trying to win La Liga. So uh, it's great for the club. And uh, hopefully, you know, more and more people tune into the women's game because, you know, it's it's everything that the men's game has. And, you know, we all love that. So there's no reason why people wouldn't pay more attention to it. Absolutely. Um, It wasn't the only final Chelsea lost this weekend. They also lost one into Leicester City in the FA Cup final on Saturday evening. Uh, Yuri Telemann scoring a 63rd minute golazo. No other word for it. Incredible goal from... But 35 yards out, right in the top corner, uh, wheeled away in kind of a very cool, collective celebration, while uh, the 6,000 Leicester fans in the stadium went absolutely bananas behind the goal. It was really great to see after so long of um, no fans in stadiums, for sure. Uh, what did you make of this game, Jasmine? Um, I guess it wasn't really a spectacular game. It was kind of really the goal that made it. But I guess that's what we love in football, isn't it? And that's what we've been missing when there's no fans in the stadiums, because the moments of, you know, kind of madness and the moments of sublime that generate such emotion is all we love football for, as opposed to the actual progression of 90 minutes of football play. So do you think that, you know, having the fans back in the stadium and the tension and what was at stake, was that really what made the game as opposed to the actual football being played itself? As someone who didn't really particularly want either team to win, um, uh, I would say I was more interested in the football on the pitch. But uh, I think uh, with especially some of... I I know it's going to sound bad, but especially the video going around with uh, Chelsea fans' reaction at scoring a last-minute equaliser just for it to be um, cancelled by far. It was uh, after how many months without seeing fans at football was a truly spectacular sight. And I think from that alone, yes, I I would be like, yeah, that was worth it. Um, As for the game itself, yeah, on quality, it wasn't that great. It, It was really... I wouldn't say it was out of character from Chelsea. Uh, we know that Chelsea can stick with possession a little bit too long without creating too many clear-cut chances. And then when they do create something a little clearer, they don't normally have the finishes on hand or the confident strikers. I think they looked a lot better in the second half when they brought on Havertz. Um and um, Pulisic and Chilwell. I think Alonso shouldn't have started, and Chilwell would have made you know, made better of the space and the pace that he had in front of him. I honestly think Giroud probably would have been a better pick with Havertz as well, because Giroud loves English finals. Um, you know, we've got the Europa uh, 
Cup final against Arsenal where he scored, got several FA Cup winners, you know, the guys experienced. And I think uh, I think possibly it wasn't so much a wrong lineup that Tuchel put out, but he was thinking more of the bigger picture if he had any injuries happen in this final and to go to a Champions League final without some of the players that he relies on more, he would have kicked himself. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a, a really 50-50 match. It wasn't one of the better FA Cup finals we've seen, but Tielemann's goal, you can't, you really can't not rate that. <laughs> Leicester completely... Stuck, stuck to the guns, um, kept it tight, kept it hard for Chelsea to penetrate them. And even when Evans came off in the 34th minute injured, I thought that might have been a, a breakthrough for Chelsea because we know how vital he is for their defence. But yeah, didn't change anything. Brendan Rodgers can be proud of his team. Yeah, you mentioned about, you know, not risking injury to key players, but do you not think that maybe Tuchel would be better served in winning that game? And carrying the positive momentum into Tuesday night's uh, Premier League clash with Leicester, and also, of course, the Champions League final with uh, Man City, because I mean, now that's the narrative has changed around Tuchel in many ways, hasn't it? Because I mean, when he first came, it was almost like he was the Messiah because of the the quality of football that his team were playing defensively and just the kind of resoluteness that he injected into the team. Um, whereas now that's changing slightly in terms of the narrative, as opposed to the reality, maybe in terms of you know losing that game, falling off a little bit in the league. Now maybe nerves are coming to a bit of a fore before that Champions League final. I mean, what do you make of this? I know you're a big fan of Tuchel's, uh, as am I. Um, but do you think that, you know, starting, as you said, Alonso instead of Chilwell, not starting Christian Pulisic, could that maybe, you know, is that beginning to turn the tide a bit? Or do you think that he has what it takes to rise above that and kind of put those doubts to one side? Well, I think... He can rise uh, above that. I think, especially with the team he put out, that team was good enough to win. Um, Some of the players themselves just didn't perform as they normally would. Even if he put a stronger team out or closer to his his own personal choice starting 11, there was no guarantee that that 11 would win either. We've seen both sides of these teams sometimes not still create or score or be clinical enough. So um, I, I don't think if, if he played his better team and they still lost the same way, which was completely possible, um, you know, we would have had the same outcome and then we would we would be arguing, would that team be good enough to face Man City? Um, so I, I just think... I think they were as good as each other and that Tielemann goal was just such an expected worldie that just broke it. Um, I think there is something to say about momentum. We've seen Unai Emery go risk it all for a Euro- Europa League final um, and lose. But I think they've got Leicester again in the league and win that and they probably will secure a Champions League spot then they can feel a little bit less pressured. They won't be the favourites going into the Champions League final either. And with that pressure off, I think that team will perform a lot better. We have to really commend Tuchel. 
this isn't his team. He hasn't had a break since he's come in. And, you know, he really had to make this team work to get where they were. I don't think anyone at the end of Frank Lampard's um, tenure would have thought, yeah, they would have finished in Champions in the Champions League spaces in the Champions League final and an FA Cup final. Very true. Very true. From a Leicester perspective, John, what did you make of this game? I mean, like, as an Evertonian, I'm very jealous of them. I was agreeing with Envy on Saturday because not just the manner of their victory in terms of the dramatic goal, the fans being in the stadium, all that kind of thing, the stuff dreams are made of, really. But I actually found that I was more jealous of them after that game than I was when they won the league in 2016 because that was maybe an aberration, a freak incident where there was a weak league and they took advantage, whereas this was really the fruit of you know intelligent coaching, uh, clever recruitment, uh, just a good team spirit being forged and a very cohesive unit you know, fighting against the odds against a team with a big budget in them, right? I mean, like, what do you make of their kind of story, you could say, in the past uh, five years or so? It's fantastic because, like you mentioned, look, 2016 was lucky. Like, we'll never, ever see the like of that again. It was the perfect storm. But they didn't waste that opportunity. A lot of people thought it would be a flash in the pan, and it was, so to speak. But Leicester did use that momentum and that increase in prestige and increase in money to really like modernize the club in a lot of ways in terms of their analytics and their scouting. And, you know, they, they made some mistakes uh, after that in terms of like sacking Claudio Ranieri, Claude Puel didn't work out too well. But then in the appointment of Brendan Rodgers and getting him to dovetail really well and successfully with the analytics and scouting team, they've been superb off the pitch in recent times. You know, if you look at some of their signings in Didi and Tielemans and Harvey Barnes and Soyuncu and... Fofana and Pereira like they they've hardly had any misses in the transfer market whatsoever maybe the only player that hasn't really met expectations is uh, Shengis Under but you know he's only a loan signing so it's really like no fee no foul that they've been excellent off the pitch and really the fruit of that has been borne out on the pitch um I, I don't I don't going to say they were totally deserved winners on, on Saturday. It could have gone either way. And, you know, a wonder goal was ultimately the difference between the two sides. But, you know, fair play to them. They, they stuck in there. They were brave. They weren't destabilized too much by Johnny Evans going off. And he, I think he is easily their most integral player in terms of a defensive sense. He's the oldest. He's got the calmest head. So he, he does a lot of organizing and, you know, cajoling and encouraging teammates in that area of the pitch. So even with losing him, they they still managed to pull it out of the fire. So you know you can only be you can only be really happy for them, and especially their owner, you know, whose father passed away in such tragic circumstances. So I think fair play to them. They they they're a club that are really on the up, and you know they play Chelsea again on Tuesday, and if they can get a good result there, they can qualify for the Champions League. And if you would say to a Leicester fan at the beginning of the season, not only will you win the FA Cup, but you'll go one better than last season and finish in the Champions League spots, they would have been absolutely over the moon. And, you know, like I mentioned, their recruitment was so good. So if they have that carrot of Champions League football and a young, exciting team and a progressive coach to work under, they could, you know, they could attract some good talent in the summer and build on further. So I think a lot rides on Tuesday. But as for the game itself, yeah, like... Fair play. I think Chelsea Chelsea were a bit too risk adverse, I thought. And, you know, Thomas, tu- Thomas Tuchel is a great coach. We've outlined it several times in this podcast. But a lot of the times he has won, it's been by thin margins and they haven't been a team that have been fantastic at taking opportunities. And, you know, I think that was the case again, uh, again on Saturday. 
I really don't know why he didn't uh, didn't start Giroud or Havertz because I felt like Timo Werner wasn't able or capable of you know connecting the play between the attacking midfielders Mount and Ziyech and the forward line and Chelsea suffered an awful lot it felt like they would have needed a perfect pass or to carve open lesser or to ha- construct a perfect move in order to score so you know a lot of their possession was a bit sterile and you know maybe they had some good opportunities from set pieces but Schmeichel was equal to them so um I think this is one black mark on Tuchel but like he's been excellent so far I think but this is one thing that goes against him and you know on another day they probably could have won it but that's cup football and fair play to Leicester I wonder what would happen if you put Erling Haaland and Thomas Tuchel Chelsea team that'd be quite a strong team wouldn't it um but Sam I guess you know Brendan Rodgers is someone who's been a figure of fun for many years you could say uh I mean obviously he's a very eccentric character by you know British football managers and Irish football managers um but He's definitely rehabilitated his reputation in many ways at Leicester, hasn't he? I mean, obviously, he did a very good job at Swansea City. Liverpool was maybe a bit of a chaotic experience. Uh, Celtic, while they were the most challenging of jobs, was a successful one. A lot of people were questioning his decision to leave Celtic for Leicester, but I think he's proved them um, wrong there, hasn't he? In terms of what he's done there, he's definitely elevated a middling club, you know, a mid-table club. I think they finished ninth, ninth, and 12th in the years immediately after the title win to a team that's really challenging the elites, aren't they? Um, and also, you know, Spurs are strongly linked today with them making a move for him in the summer. Um, you know, a very interesting times ahead for Brendan Rodgers. Do you think he'd be better served in staying at Leicester or going somewhere like Spurs? And do you, are you impressed by how he's kind of rehabilitated his reputation after being, you know, as I mentioned, the kind of figure of fun for so many years? That's the thing, Is always kind of been a weird one that he has been a figure of fun because every team he's been at, he has improved them. I mean, Liverpool taking them to that title challenge in 13-14 in was, was incredible. And then at Celtic, I mean, sure, maybe it's not the most competitive of leagues, the biggest challenge that he's faced in his career, but he did win pretty much everything there was to win with Celtic. So you can't ask for much more of him. And then Leicester, I think, was a very smart move on his behalf. He was never going to be under big pressure it was never going to be one of the big jobs that he wouldn't be afforded the time to get it right and so that's just what he's done and with Tottenham circling I think it's a move that would make sense but then at the same time I think is that really a step up from Leicester at the moment which is a weird thing to say maybe even the infrastructure of the two clubs but I think with Leicester where they're at the the reputation he's got would he be better off doing another year Leicester doing well in Europe trying to, to stabilise them as a top four club, maybe even again next season. Would there then be a bigger offer than a Tottenham? Would there be, a, I don't know, maybe even a United or something like that that might look at Brendan Rodgers? I think it's kind of his his reputation is kind of almost old school. He's not one of the hipster coaches. He's not trendy, but he does have success everywhere he goes and, and he knows what he's doing. He's never been the most popular with fans, but but he does bring the trophies in, and that's what some clubs are, are concerned about. Absolutely. Uh, Borussia Dortmund, Jasmine beat Leipzig 4-1 in the DFB Pokal final. Um, Erling Haaland in this game, again, just a freak of nature. I mean, he threw the Upmancano, highly rated centre-back, who's joining Bayern Munich this summer, to the ground like he was a child. Like, in Upmancano was not a slight, slight man. He's quite a, a bulky fella. Um, you know, a brace for him, a brace for Jaden Sancho as well, who's really hitting a kind of astronomical vein of form uh, just in time for the Euros and the summer transfer window, coincidentally. 
Um, like, why did you make this game from a Dortmund point of view and a Leicester point of view? I mean, sorry, uh, a Leipzig point of view. Uh, and also, how impressed were you by Haaland and Sancho, not just in this game, but in the entire season? Um, oh, that's a loaded question. Um, yeah, it was quite unexpected, the Pokal final. Um, I guess when these teams have met up, especially this season, Actually, the last time they met before the final wasn't close. It was an absolutely crazy game, loads of goals. And then if you looked at the eye test when they met earlier, um, basically it was Leipzig had shut Dortmund out very well defensively. And then just for some reason in the second half, it kind of faltered and Dortmund took control. And Terzic has been absolutely incredible as interim manager for Dortmund he has definitely called Nagelsmann's defensive structure and just thrown out the window um in a way that many managers have tried to break Leipzig down and haven't had the same kind of possibility to break them down but yeah I mean they went 3-0 up in the first half and it was when you're against uh, that kind of Dortmund team, you kind of think it's game over, especially with this Leipzig team. Um, it was the first final Leipzig has ever been in. So a little bit like the Chelsea women's in the Champions League. This is a new territory for them. And across the whole season, even though they were, um, even though they were title challengers at some point, there were the same kind of problems for RB Leipzig. Now, it was not only like the underperformance of Upamecano. I mean, he's dealing with probably what is the best striker in the world. Um, And you're not going to always have a good day against the best striker in the world, someone who's that physically strong and clinical. But also the way that the team was set up was kind of disappointing he went with two at the front uh Nagelsmann went with two at the front with Huang and Surloth who hadn't really been banging in goals um to be fair none of the team have have like a a goal scorer that they can go to this has been Leipzig's problem throughout the season they kind of share the goals but this is a season where like one person in a team makes the difference out of most teams this season. And um, Leipzig just don't have that. They depend on their structure to beat teams. And that was evident in this game. Um, they looked better when they put the likes of um, uh, Poulsen and Kunku and Forsberg in the second half. But they still didn't have that clinical striker because they did have... Um, around 16 goal attempts in the second half, but only three of those were on target, one of which they scored. And in the whole match, Dortmund only had four shots on target. So you kind of get the idea with about quality and how that can make a difference. Obviously, that quality includes Erling Haaland, who's just been immense all season, but also Jaden Sancho. Um, Now, we'll get onto this, but... Dortmund now have a Champions League place, so I actually think Dortmund won't lose Erling Haaland, who's one of the most clinical strikes they've probably ever had. Um, 
So that kind of worry about keeping Haaland because he wants to be the best in, and you can only be the best if you're playing in the best competitions. They might have held on to him another year. He's so young, they, he can always move next year, um, especially with his release clause kicking in next year. Uh, Jaden Sancho, I'm still um, unsure about. He's been completely amazing. Uh, it, some people question his form, especially at the first half of the season but the last few weeks especially coming back from injury he has been on fire um however I still think he'll leave Dortmund I think he wants to return back to England there was a report in the Spanish press over the weekend that Lewandowski Robert Lewandowski has is reportedly considering leaving Bayern Munich uh for a new challenge and given he's won everything he can win there and that he could go to PSG, perhaps. And the Spanish press season this because they saw, okay, if Lewandowski goes to PSG, then that frees up space for Mbappe to come to Madrid. Uh, have, has there been any reports of that on the ground in Germany? And do you think there's any chance that could happen? I mean, it does seem to be a bit of a changing of the guard moment at Bayern, given that Nagelsmann is coming in with his energy and new ideas, uh, Alaba is leaving. Do you think that could happen? Or do you think that's maybe just a bit of a bullshit? Yeah, I, I think I think that's just uh, the good old summer rumour mill kicking into gear. I don't see him leaving because I think if there was even a sniff of him leaving, uh, Bayern already would have prepared for it. I think Lewandowski's also come out and said he's actually really excited to work with Nagelsmann. It is a, it's weird to work with someone probably have a head coach. Uh, the same age, I believe. They're they're both around 32, 33. Um, and he seemed genuinely really excited to work with him. So I don't think that's going to happen just yet. I think, yeah, especially with his age, I think he's more determined to see his career out in Germany. I could be wrong, but at the moment, it does point for him to stay at Bayern Munich. Very interesting for sure. Um, going to the Premier League, very bad week for Manchester United, John. Uh, losing 2-1 to Leicester and then losing 4-2 to Liverpool. Uh, is this a blip? And do you think that the loss of Harry Maguire, um, potentially for their Europe League final with Villarreal uh, Wednesday week, could have a seriously destabilising effect on their defence? Yeah, first of all, I think it could have a seriously destabilizing effect on their defense because he he played every single Premier League minute until he got injured. Like he's his availability record is absolutely phenomenal, and United are probably one of the only teams this season that haven't been that badly afflicted by injuries. So they've built up a lot of synergy between their back four of Aaron Wan-Bissaka, Lindelof, Maguire, and Shaw. That's basically been their back four in every single game. Now I know the keepers have changed uh, sporadically. Sometimes it's De Gea. Other times is Henderson, so I and I think that could have a that could have quite a bearing on them, and whether or not he's going to be fit for the Europa League final or for the Euros remains to be seen. I think he's still in a protective boot, so you would probably say it's unlikely. Um, but whether or not it's a blip is hard to say because we obviously know the fixture pandemonium that was caused by their uh, by their originally scheduled fixture with Liverpool being postponed, and then they obviously had to play Leicester two days later, so they rotated really heavily and were defeated there and then of course they kept their main team to play Liverpool and then Liverpool defeated them 4-2 you know and that that's the kind of thing though that could always happen because 
whether whether or not people would agree Liverpool have had a terrible season. They have. <clears throat> They've actually been really good away from home against the top teams. Like the the only the only game they w- would have dropped points in would have been Everton and Man City against the. Uh, against a bigger team. So they've been really good away from home and that, uh, you know, they, they were deserved winners in that one. So it's hard to say whether or not it's a blip, but at the same time, United are a team that have won a lot of games by small margin this season, like by late, uh, late penalties or late wonder goals. So maybe a little bit, their underlying numbers are coming back to, uh, to haunt them, but I'm just not sure whether you could describe that as a blip or not, just because of how odd, the circumstances are with the with the Leicester game. I mean, how often do you play a team that are chasing Champions League football uh, at home and have to basically change your entire team? So because of that, it's hard to read too much into it. But certainly, you know, in both games, they were they were deserving to be on the losing side. Um, I guess bad week for United, but very very good week for Liverpool. Um, following that four two win up with the two one defeat of West Brom. Uh, it was kind of a weird week, really, because, I mean, like, you had the winning at United, which is obviously fantastic, uh, especially in the context of the race for top four plays. But then you also had, you know, the incident with Sadio Mane and Jurgen Klopp post-game where Mane uh, didn't shake uh, his coach's hand. And then you had that doubled up with the remarkable scenes that uh, West Brom where uh, Alisson scored a you know, last-minute winner after coming up from... For a corner kick, the goalkeeper Allison, quite remarkably, and then giving a very emotional post-match speech where he spoke about his father who passed away this season. He wasn't able to go back to Brazil to pay his respects and all that kind of thing. So, what do you make the week from Liverpool perspective, and how do you kind of cope and kind of you know contextualize the the roller coaster of emotion? You could say there's that old quote that like nothing happens for decades, and then sometimes decades happen in a week. Um, They've kind of felt like that. <laughs> it, there's so much in a range of emotions. Like you start on the Manchester United game and they fall behind. And, you know, Liverpool have been accused a lot of times this season of having a brittle mentality. So when they fall behind to the, at the home of their biggest rivals and you, you just kind of start thinking about all the bad things that have befallen this team during the season and you're not confident, but, you know, fair play to them. They managed to turn that around in spectacular fashion. And, you know, bar a few poor finishes, the scoreline could have even been more. And then, yeah, of course, you have that <clears throat> you have that kind of incident with Klopp and Mane, which you know, as a fan, I wouldn't be too distressed about. I mean, he's a he's a super competitive athlete. He was due to be in the starting team by a last minute change of mind, so he was obviously frustrated. And he's also, you know, he's been in poor form for the majority of the season. So I guess that's just one of those things that happens. Um, Jota had a season-ending in- injury in that game, so he was restored to the starting lineup for the West Brom game, and you know bar winning the ball back and uh, supplying an assist to Salah. He was actually quite poor in that game as well. But I mean, the real story of that game is Alisson scoring. Like even saying it now, there's a, like a sense of incredibility in my mind. Like, how, <laughs> When does that happen? It's absolutely incredible, especially given the context in that like West Brom were this already relegated team, but they put their heart and soul into trying to stop Liverpool. And, you know, Liverpool had 20 shots, six on target. They were all the territory, all the possession, and they just couldn't find a way. And next thing, their goalkeeper comes up and heads in a corner because the context is Liverpool have been really poor from attacking set pieces this season because they've been devoid of so much height. That's only the seventh corner uh, they've scored from. I think the most in the league is 15. So, you know, that goes to show they have less than half than half the highest team 
scoring from corners. So <laughs> for Alisson to come up and do that, the first competitive goal a goalkeeper scored in Liverpool's history, 129 years, was absolutely incredible. And then when you look at it, like his father tragically died a couple of months ago. He wasn't able to go home to grieve, obviously, because of the pandemic. So what a moment that was for him. And, you know, what a moment it could be for the club because, you know, as great as that was, they still have to beat Burnley and they still have to beat Crystal Palace. And if you look at the West Brom game, you will see that Liverpool were very susceptible to long balls into the channel towards a big man striker. And, you know, Burnley grow those kind of players from the ground. So that's going to be a route I'm sure they will look to exploit again on Wednesday evening. And then, of course, you have Crystal Palace managed by former Liverpool manager Roy Hodgson, who is very likely going to be in his last game in club management. So fans of narrative will be kind of getting up, getting their backs up a little bit, just awaiting some kind of patented Barclays vial to befall Liverpool. But yeah, they've put themselves into a position where it's in their own hands and that's so much more than you would have thought they could do when Newcastle scored that late equaliser a couple of months ago. Like It's been such a season where things have been so concertinaed and so jam-packed that the narrative constantly changes. And honestly, it's absolutely exhausting. So one way or another, I just cannot wait for the season to end. And uh, hopefully Liverpool, as a fan, they come out on the right end of it. But uh, I'm actually really glad for the sweet release of the final whistle on the final day of the season next Sunday. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess um, the top four race is really kind of crazy at the moment, isn't it? I mean, like you have... Chelsea in fourth on 64 points, uh, Leicester in third on 66, uh, Liverpool in fifth on 63, Spurs in sixth on 59, and West Ham in seventh on 59. I'm going to discount the mighty Everton from the scenario after their uh, unforgivable defeat to one of the worst teams in Premier League history in Sheffield United on Sunday evening. The less about which said, the better. But just focusing on those teams I mentioned, I mean, Chelsea lost to Arsenal uh, during the week. Liverpool, of course, you mentioned beat United and West Brom. Uh, West Ham drew away at Brighton. Spurs beat Wolves 2-0. Uh, how do you see the top four race? I mean, it's definitely shaping up to look like Liverpool could be a serious challenger for Chelsea, right? Yeah, well, I think I've even got a bit of a feeling now that Liverpool will make it in there, which is kind of like John said, it's remarkable with the season they've had. But, I mean, you look at some of the stats and they're not as bad as it feels like they've been. I mean, defensively, they haven't actually conceded that many goals. I think there's only two or three teams that have conceded fewer goals in attack. I mean, you've got Mo Salah who scored 30 goals this season. I mean, they're not doing too badly that way either. So I think it's a weird one with Liverpool. I think they started off well, then they went so bad, and now they're kind of back to playing well again. I think they have kind of got a bit of momentum that maybe Chelsea with the FA Cup final with that result against Arsenal as well, maybe they're having a bit of a wobble. And is this kind of when Klopp can kind of bring things back and the Klopp comes really into his element with that motivating factor and, and convinces players that they can do it, gets them believing in these last few games? Maybe that's what pushes them over the line with Chelsea. Maybe one eye on the Champions League final. If they slip up again, then then Liverpool will be right in there to try and pounce and, and make the most of it. Yeah, and I mean, like, Spurs are an interesting one. I mean, there's... They're sixth on the table now. Uh, they're four points behind Liverpool, looking probably just you know a bit beyond uh, touching distance for them. I mean, news broke this evening that Harry Kane has reportedly asked Diane Levy to leave the club in the summer. Uh, what's your reading this, Jasmine? I mean, do you think that he will leave in the summer? And where do you think he will go? If so, I mean, some of the names mentioned have been obviously Manchester City, Manchester United, 
uh, Paris Saint-Germain, both Spanish clubs have been mentioned in the past, although their financial situation and their priorities seem to align uh, different targets. Uh, what do you make of the dilemma facing both Spurs and Harry Kane this summer? And where do you think he'll most likely be playing his football next season? I think out of all the clubs kind of rumoured around him, I would say Manchester United's probably the most, like, the like, easiest, the best fit, just the one that I see as the mo- most likeliest. Um, PSG are said to be um, extending Julian Drexler's contract to 2024. So that, along with Neymar, and I would probably think no one will front up the money for Mbappe this season. So I think PSG, although the Maurizio Pochettino um, kind of link there would be quite nice for Harry Kane. I don't see it happening. Uh, again, it, there's the money kind of problem with both the Spanish clubs. And I, th- I feel like it's just a very Manchester United move. They've been wanting um, someone proficient in the Premier League, someone that they can depend on. I know Aguero's will be leaving um, Man City at the end of the season, but I don't see Harry Kane as a Pep Guardiola striker. Something about him just doesn't seem very him. And honestly, that's the only reason why I would have Man City behind Man United. I think Man United are also more likely to scout a different player from the Premier League, established player from the Premier League and take them to the team. Um, I don't think, uh, I would also probably think Liverpool. I think he could work in Liverpool system and under Klopp quite well. Um, So, yeah, that's what I kind of make for it. I don't know if there's been a kind of, I think everyone wants to jump on the reactionary view that Kane is unhappy and he wants to leave. But I think Kane is also very um, very open to the option that if no one puts up the money for him, he'll be more than happy to stay at Spurs. Um, he doesn't want to create a problem for no reason. But that's we'll just have to see if the money is actually offered for him. Daniel Levy is a notoriously difficult negotiator um, and he's very, very someone, very much someone who doesn't like selling to direct Premier League rivals. Um, what to make of the whole situation, John? I mean, like, do you think that Kane could, you know, turn nasty and kind of really kind of assert his authority and push for a move? Because, I mean, he knows better than anybody how tough Daniel Levy is um, regarding holding on to, you know, a star assets and I think he does team his assets and I think the Super League fiasco has shown um you know where his interests in football lie I mean like do you agree with Jasmine do you think that Kane will be you know put the interest of the club and the team the collective above his own in terms of not kicking up a fuss if he doesn't get a move or do you think that maybe we'll see another side to him because I mean if you saw that Spurs documentary I think he's very clearly in stating that he he wants to be uh, Messi. He wants to be Ronaldo. That's how he sees himself. And at 27, this may be his last chance to get a big move. I mean, Spurs are going nowhere fast. Uh, uncertainty over their recruitment in the summer in both the managerial office and the playing staff. 
you know, it's kind of a, it feels like a now or never moment for him to ascend to the elite of the elite, right? Or what do you think? Yeah, it, it's a difficult one. Like, first and foremost, he's an absolutely fabulous player and he would benefit any club he joined. He, he's phenomenally good and he's defied all levels of expectations since he made his since he made his breakthrough. I mean, one season wonder, he's about five or six consecutive seasons of being absolutely superb and adding new elements to his game. He's not only a goal scorer, he's actually a supreme creator. So he would, you know, he would be great for anybody. But like you mentioned, he wants to be like a Ronaldo or a Messi, but like is Spurs a club that are best suited to totally indulge him and to build a team around him and to make him their pinnacle and to make them him their focal point. So like whether or not he's going to get that same kind of adulation and the same kind of, you know, regularity of service and of responsibility at another club is is an interesting element to consider. And I th- also think as well, there's the financial aspect of it. I mean, who can afford Harry Kane realistically? Only really a handful of clubs. Out of those clubs, who is he interested in joining him? Is uh, centre forward their number one priority? I think maybe the best club for him to possibly go to is is uh, Manchester City. But like as Jasmine said, maybe perhaps Pep Guardiola Guardiola wants to go on a different route. I think Manchester United will always be interested because he would be a shiny new toy. And I think their owners are kind of maybe a little bit looking to maybe mend relationships with their fan base somewhat. And Harry Kane could be a very expensive distraction. So uh, they, they could be someone to keep an eye out for. But I think it all fundamentally comes back down to Daniel Levy. He is notoriously difficult to to deal with. Real Madrid will know this over their pursuit of both uh, Modric and Bale. Um, Manchester City will know this for years ago from when they signed Kyle Walker for what was then a massive amount of 50 million. And I think that very likely that Daniel Levy would consider Manchester United to be on a par with Tottenham. Therefore, I think that he would charge through the absolute nose for Harry Kane to a club like Manchester United. And whether or not then you know, United could justify spending all that much on a player who is, like I mentioned, brilliant, but who has had, you know, several setbacks with ankle injuries. You know, that remains to be seen. I think that could be the only that could be the only downfall in some teams deciding not to go for him is that injury record. Because while there's always like exceptions, you look at Robin Van Persie, he was quite injury prone at Arsenal and he went to Manchester United and he's phenomenal. But there's also always Fernando Torres whose knee was absolutely banjaxed and he went to Chelsea and he regressed at a at a rate of knots. So as brilliant of a player he is, I don't think it's that simple to pull the trigger on him just because of his injury record. But uh, it could end up that he just stays by default by dint of knowing being able to afford him. And then in that circumstance, uh, I think Tottenham could possibly look out just given the time of uh, the time of the world that we live in right now. Where do you think he'll end up, Sam? I think he'll probably end up still at Tottenham. I just can't see anyone who's got the money to, to go for him this summer. I think he's one of those guys who's no longer a youngster. And as John says, he's had some injury issues. And he's got Daniel Levy. He's going to push for the highest possible price. And I guess for United, it's going to be a kind of a question of, are they the United of, a, United of the last few years who want to spend their whole transfer budget on one big star and, and all the marketing power that, that brings with it? Or are they going to change a bit and be more sustainable and and spend a bit more wisely? And, if he does go to United, I wouldn't be surprised, but I think the fee would be astronomical. And I don't think that makes much sense for, for United to invest so much in a, an injury-prone 27-year-old. But if they do want a star, then the England captain is looking for a move, proven Premier League record. I guess they couldn't do much better than that. Absolutely. 
Um, moving on to Spain and La Liga, it was a really thrilling uh, week and weekend of action. Uh, Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid and Barcelona played on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday night, as well as all simultaneously on Sunday. Uh, Levante hosted Barcelona on Tuesday through Triol. Uh, Barcelona twice blew leads to drop two points and virtually put themselves out of the title race in many ways. Uh, Atletico Madrid the following evening beat Real Sociedad in a very nervy 2-1 win. Uh, Real Madrid on Thursday night won 4-1 away at Granada to keep themselves in the race. Then in the simultaneous fixtures, it was just you know genuinely remarkable uh, days of football. Uh, Real Madrid won 1-0 at the club. Quite a procedural victory for them. Not spectacular, but very solid. Uh, Barcelona again blew a lead, this time to Celta Vigo at Camp Nou, meaning they've lost to Celta Vigo and Granada in the space of you know several weeks, both at Camp Nou. Quite a remarkable collapse for Ronald Koeman and one that's definitely going to see his uh, tenure as Barcelona coach come under serious threat and he probably won't be there next season, going by the reports in the Catalan media today. Uh, but the real story of the week was definitely Atletico. I mean, they followed up that kind of nervy win over La Real with a stunning 2-1 win over Asasuna. They went 1-0 down to Asasuna after having an opening goal ruled out by VAR, got an equaliser by the unfancied Renan Lodi, who came on as a substitute, uh, alongside Joao Felix, who actually assisted him for the, for the goal. And then Luis Suarez, of course, scored a late, late winner to put the title race back into Atletico's hands. And send him into the final day of the season this Saturday evening uh, with a chance of winning another title under Diego Simeone following up in the 2014 triumph when they play Real Valdelid, who are already relegated. Are, are sorry, no, are, are, are very close to being relegated. They're in the relegation battle. What do you make of this week's uh, football in Spain, Sam? I mean, let's start with Barcelona. Like, really was shocking stuff, wasn't it? And it's been a remarkable kind of late season collapse for them. Definitely. I mean, the Levante game in midweek, my dad sent me a message at half time and said, is it worth putting the Barcelona game on? And I said, no, it's 2-0, they're cruising, don't bother. And then obviously, look at what happened in the second half and Levante came back to, to take a 3 or draw at the end of it. And I think that will be the biggest concern when, like you say, all this talk of Ronald Koeman's future. This is definitely kind of the atmosphere, the mentality that Barcelona fans have been so concerned about in recent years. I mean, it was what saw the end of Ernesto Alvarado he was very astute as a coach and with Setien, it didn't improve this this mentality of being a bit weak, not being able to see results out. And with Komen, it just started to feel like maybe they'd turned a page and now with these youngsters in the team, they'd, they'd changed that enough. I mean, the Copa del Rey win was a, a big win, a very impressive win with the way they were playing. But now this collapse has kind of done away with all of the good that Komen got with that Copa del Rey win and... I'd be very surprised if Coma is still in the job this time next season, but I think it's just kind of the very Barcelona collapse to to build everybody's hopes up again, think that they can compete in the title race, to then go and throw it away by dropping points against teams like Granada, Celta Vigo, Levante, having been by far the best team in, in 2021. Definitely. I mean, like, I guess... Koeman was never Laporta's man. He was appointed by Josep Maria, the now disgraced Josep Maria Bartomeu last summer. And I've, you know, Koeman is a club legend at Barcelona because of what he did as a player, you know, scoring the winning goal in the 1982 European Cup final. Um, but I always get the feeling that, you know, Laporta was going to treat him with great respect because of who he was and how important he is to the club. But he was never his man. And I think as soon as 
an opportunity opened up for him to make that decision in terms of dispensing with him and bringing in his own person. I think he was going to take that. I think he will take that. Um, some of the names being bandied about, you know, include Xavi Hernandez, currently at Qatar, but very much batting his eyelashes uh, back to Catalonia. He's long been considered a kind of, you know, successor in waiting. Other people mentioned has been Eric uh, Ten Hag at Ajax and Garcia Pimienta at um, the Barcelona B team right now. Uh, what do you think about what Laporta will do this summer? What decisions will he take? How do you feel that's, that's going to go? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that Koeman's never been his man. I know that right at the very start of the season, he was saying that he would change the manager. And then as he won the election, was kind of Koeman's very best time, the best form Barcelona had had. And so he was kind of, no, we'll stick with Koeman until the end of the season and then beyond that probably as well. And now that's changed a bit. And I think he will be dismissed at the end of the season. And I think it's... Is most likely going to be Xavi. I mean, he came into Barcelona for his holidays today and he came in with 22 suitcases. And some poor guy at Barcelona Airport has stood there counting them for the Catalan media. And so that's been a big story that Xavi's got 22 suitcases with him in Barcelona. He's staying for good. He's not going back to Qatar. And I think that's just the logical appointment. I think it's a very Barcelona appointment. It's a very Laporta appointment, kind of going back to when he hired Guardiola. And it was very much an unproven kind of guy. And I don't think he'll have any doubts about hiring Xavi, even though he doesn't have any experience in La Liga or in Europe or anything like that. And I think it will kind of go back to that whole idea of wanting to renew the whole squad, the, the dressing room and and start from scratch almost. I think it'll be interesting next season. So I think we could have Real Madrid and Barcelona both doing the same thing. And if Real Madrid end up appointing Raul, then we could have both clubs with legends from the early noughties building whole new young squads at both clubs. I think that would just be really intriguing to see now that kind of the Messi-Cristiano era is coming to an end. Then that will be an interesting way of kind of stepping La Liga into the next the next era. Definitely. Do you think Messi will stay this summer? I mean, like, uh, you know, all the sensations that I was getting from, you know, following the club from afar has been that it's looking more likely he'd stay than go. But I guess the manner of that defeat... He was straight down the tunnel after the Levante game. Like he's the Pichichi of the season. He's on 30 goals for the campaign, despite being 33 years of age. I mean, do you think that he's going to stay or do you think he's going to go? I think he will, but I don't think it's going to really affect him how much the La Liga title race has gone wrong in the last few weeks. I think he wanted the change in the presidency and in Laporta, he's got the best possible owner for Lionel Messi. And then I think he wanted to see that there was a project. I think that Barcelona have shown that. I mean, with all the youngsters they bring into the team, Pedri, um, even giving more important roles, the likes of Frenkie de Jong, who are already in the squad. I mean, they're the kind of moves that, that Messi wanted to see. And so I think he can maybe sit back, relax, and know that he will have a project to build a winning team around him. And, and whether that Barcelona team is going to be ready to compete at the very top level in Europe or not, We'll have to see, but I think for Messi to, I think there is kind of a sentimental factor that last year he was so fed up at Bartomeu that he was willing to throw it all away. This year, I think he'll end up staying just because he knows that Laporta will support him and he's got a club for life. And whatever happens when he retires, if he goes back to Newell's boys to end his playing days, and he can always come back to Barcelona. I think he will stay just to to keep hold of that link and, and be that one club man. I think the idea from Barcelona's perspective to kind of satisfy Messi 
is one, to bring in Aguero, he stays, you know, as one of his oldest friends, but also to sign a deal with him basically where he can recoup any lost finances in terms of having, you know, two years at Barcelona left, say, and then he can go to return in the United States while still being on Barcelona's payroll as an ambassador to Barcelona in the United States. And then when he retires from playing, he can come back to Barcelona, as you mentioned, and take up a role. I don't think he'd be a coach by any means, but I think, you know, a role within the setup uh, will always be there for him, for sure, because of just what a legend he is. But then just finally finishing off uh, in Spain, Atletico. I mean, you were at uh, the one of Metropolitano yesterday, Sam. Um, really remarkable scenes. I mean, like, I know that, you know, Atletico is all about suffering, as Suarez said in his post interview, but he didn't realise it was that much about suffering. Like, it was really incredible scenes. Like, I mean, you know, it, it seemed like it was typical Atletico to blow it the way they did. Madrid kind of depressingly, inexorably advancing on in a kind of gritty 1-0 win away Athletic club. And then for, you know, Atletico to blow it against Asasuna at home, it's a pivotal point of the season. But then to come back through the unfancy duo of Joao Felix and Renan Lodi combining, who've not had great seasons, to be fair, in this team. And then for Luis Suarez to come up in the Suarez zone, as uh, Diego Simeone mentioned beforehand, and can deliver that killer blow right at the end and celebrate like a madman. Like, it was really something else, wasn't it? Like Yeah, and the celebrations were crazy. I mean, all the players jumping all over each other, the subs. There's a brilliant clip of Diego Simeone being Diego Simeone. He celebrates for about five seconds, and then he's thinking about the next substitution he makes, and he wants to bring on Jeffrey Condogbia. And then he realises that Jeffrey Condogbia is at the bottom of this huge pile of players in the corner. So he's running down the touchline, chasing Condogbia, trying to get him to come back and get his kit on. And it's just so Atletico Madrid. I mean, it reminded me a lot at one point of the the 2013-14 title win when the last home game of the season, the penultimate weekend, was at home to Malaga. They went 1-0 down and ended up drawing 1-0. And if they'd won that day, they could have won La Liga. But the draw meant they went to, to the final day going to Camp Nou and they had to, to draw or beat Barcelona. So I think kind of this year, that's a lot easier. They only have to go to Real Valladolid and, and get a win. But it's very Atletico that they don't do things the easy way. They're never going to win the title by winning 3-4-0 every week. But I think they're that kind of team that keep plugging away in the difference in this Atleti side to the Atleti sides in recent years is that they do have that mentality and they've got warriors like Luis Suarez and Yannick Carrasco in the last few weeks has been in incredible form. wonder why he went to China in the first place. But just those kinds of guys who are going to push the team on, keep them going. And in those last few minutes, when you see Marcos Llorente running at 40 miles an hour and Luis Suarez uh, with all of his years of age and his dodgy knees and everything scoring the goal, then that's the team of Warriors that, that is very Atletico Madrid. And that's what will help get them over the line if they do see it out on Saturday. Absolutely. One game left in Spain. They're at 83 points. Madrid are on 81. Barcelona are out of the race in 76. Uh, moving on to Germany, uh, Schalke, who are bottom of the Bundesliga uh, with three wins from 33 games, goal difference of minus 60, uh, somehow managed to beat Champions League tracing Eintracht Frankfurt 4-3. How did this happen, Jasmine? I am still trying to figure it out for myself. Um, there was nothing to say that this would have happened. Eintracht Frankfurt had more possession, had more shots on target. Um, I test they probably weren't the better team because if you let Schalke score four goals against you, 
you're not having quite a a proper structure. Um, Eintracht even created better quality chances as well. In XG, they um, led Schalke. Schalke only had 2.69. I'm not sure how they scored that many from um, that, that little quality chances, but sometimes it, it's not your day. And Frankfurt, unfortunately, even though they're going for a Champions League spot and have lost out because of this result, it just wasn't exactly their day. They could have um, probably just been a little bit more, um, a little bit more organised in defence. Just kind of little problems snuck in. They haven't been on the best run since it was announced that Adi Hutter would be joining München Gladbach next season. There's something about um, managers leaving for rival teams mid-season, which seems to plummet their uh, form in the league. Um, and yeah, so somehow that was a perfect storm for Schalke's win. And it has to be said that Gramotzis, Schalke's fifth manager of the season, has actually bettered them in some ways. Um, they look a little bit more up for a fight, even though there's no fight to be had. They're just a little bit more functional than we've seen several times in the past this season. Do you reckon that Andre Silva could be on the move this summer? I think it's a very big possibility. It's a all change at Eintracht Frankfurt come this summer. Um, as I said, Hutter's Lehmann for Gladbach. They're Bobic, the sporting director, is going to Hertha Berlin. And... Um, Exporting director Krusha from Leipzig will be moving to Frankfurt. So we've they've got like a whole rebuild from kind of executive level downwards. So if their most prominent striker wants to leave, and there is a good way for him, especially in the Premier League, that it's definitely can be done. I would have said if Haaland ever managed to leave Dortmund for a bigger club, I think Dortmund should just be looking at Andre Silva to take his place because he's clinical. All right, he's Jesus still, Christ. Yeah, can you imagine him? It's like a, it's like it's like a cat, it's like a caterpillar is eating itself. Like the, the Bundesliga in every way. It's just like a, a coach goes and then a bigger club takes that coach and then that. Club takes smaller clubs coach. It's the same with players. Like it's it's crazy. Like what's going on? Like I, I mean, if you've got if Eintracht Frankfurt, like they finish in Europa League, okay, they should have gotten Champions League. Europa League's still not that bad for them. I mean, if they didn't get European football last season for this season. Um so Europa League for them is a very big deal. Um but you know, if a Champions League club comes calling especially of Dortmund's stature he would go and he would easily gel into the team he had he'll have players who would provide for him like he does with um Eunice and Kamada at Frankfurt um he would have fit in perfectly but with Haaland now staying um I think if he does move it'll be out of Germany um I think I've said on this podcast his uh, agent is Mendes so if Kane does leave, maybe we'll see him at Tottenham. 
Very interesting. Marco Silva is learning German too, by the way, just in case you want oh to God, throw no. a, a wild card into the mix. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot that he even existed. <laughs> I think a lot of the football community did. Um, how has Luka Jovic done this season? He's, he's a f- source of fascination for Madrid for obvious reasons. Do you think that he's risen in value or depreciated in value? I mean, he's done well for Eintracht Frankfurt. Um, I mean, he's a good... I I think from being away from them so long and coming back into a team that was working very well um, without him, that, you know, this... But he didn't... He had a place he can come on, he can fill in for gaps, but... um, and he looks a lot more comfortable in the German league than he has done at Real Madrid, which isn't really saying much. Um, so I, I don't think that his value would have particularly changed, let's put it that way. Um, the relegation battle is intriguing in Germany. Uh, Werder Bremen on 31 points in 16th, Köln on 30 points in 17th, Armenia Bielefeld on 32 and 15th. Uh, heading into the final day of the season, Hertha drew it all with Cohen at the weekends. Augsburg beat Werder Bremen 2 0. How do you see the relegation battle going in the final day? Um, well, it was really interesting. Hertha, uh, sorry, Werder Bremen have been on absolutely terrible form. If you would have said like around five weeks ago, they were pretty much safe. And they've just gone on this terrible run and for quite some time. Um, and so they've they wanted to stick with their manager Florian Kofeld. He's around thirty eight, a very talented manager, but he just hasn't been really working well with Werder Bremen this season. He didn't really work well with them last season either. But they just kept on thinking they could get through the season with one more win and just sack him at the end of the season. But they couldn't even try that. They had to sack him. Um, at the moment, because they just they don't look like winning. They they just look like they're going to go down at the moment. Um, now that they've sacked him and um, have put in a former club legend at char- in charge, and against Munching Gladbach, who haven't been very good, they led one nil against Stuttgart before losing 2-1 yet again to put them out of the Europa League places and the um, European Conference League place. Um, I just see Werder Bremen actually stepping it up again and winning that last match of the season against them to become safe. So then you've got Minia Bielefeld, who have um, Stuttgart, who newly promoted this season, have done so well, can still finish for the Conference League, which any kind of Europe for Stuttgart would be an immense feat for them. So that's quite a hard match for Bielefeld. So I can see them dropping into the relegation player. And then you've got Cone, who are the bottom of the pack, but actually have Schalke. Now you think, okay, Cone should win this. And but we've seen Schalke just beat Eintracht Frankfurt, and I'm pretty sure if Schalke wants to ruin someone's day now, they can from that result alone. Even if Cohn win against this, it would only take them up to 33 points, which 
is then dependent on the teams around them. If Bremen win and Bielefeld win, it doesn't matter if Cone win, they get they get relegated. If one of those two win and Cone also win, then they go with the relegation playoff and um, face whoever's third in the Spider Bundesliga, which um, would be either Furt or Kiel. Um, I don't think Bochum can drop down because the title race for the Spider Bundesliga is also very close, but it would be one of those three teams that they'd face. Um, so, yeah, very, very tight. Do you reckon that Schalke have the infrastructure to bounce back up next season or do you think that they could be in for a bit of trouble? <sighs> I This is a really hard one. Um, they've already made like some efforts to keep some players for next season. I think they should be good enough to bounce back. They've got an experienced Spice of Bundesliga manager um, who actually used to manage the team that I support in the Spice of Bundesliga, Darmstadt. Um, he nearly took Darmstadt to the playoffs um, in when he was managing them, his last uh, management. But with the COVID break, he had a big break and then was actually in the bottom half of the table before the COVID break. And that break somehow bounced that team to finish near the playoffs. So I we don't actually know if he can get this team back up or if COVID overrated his actual um, results in his last management role. Who are you fancying from the championship, John, to come up to the Premier League? Who do you think could do a... We can make a splash next season. Coming up from the championship, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm happy to see Norwich back. I really liked them under Daniel Farker. They played really attractive football. I think they were just hampered by the fact they had so many defensive injuries that seemed to last for the entirety of their season. So hopefully, if they can maybe make a few acquisitions, I know they sold Ben Godfrey to Everton. He he was a good defender for them, but he big, was also big Ben. Big Ben. He's yeah, a god. Yeah. Don't don't don't, uh, don't insult him at all. Don't don't talk him down anyway. No, I wasn't going to say that. He's literally the, the one bright spot in a horrendous uh, culmination to a season. Well, not horrendous. Yeah. That's an exaggeration. But he's he's amazing. Like he's physically, he's just a beast. He's so quick, so strong. His character, his mentality is just. Right up there, I think genuinely, like he's gone from being, you know, an emergency option at the beginning of the season to being probably the first centre back in the team sheet, remarkably. But sorry, I digress. I needed some sort of a positive Everton interaction today. Don't worry about it. But uh, yeah, he actually might go to the Euros of England. It wouldn't shock me, especially with 26 uh, squad players. But um, yeah, so he was a bit green when Norwich were up that time. So they couldn't really rely upon him as much as they would have been able to if he was maybe a little bit older. But now, hopefully, they can address some of that in the summer because they still do have, you know, they have a lot of firepower. Emi Buendia is a really nice player. So is Cantwell. Puki st- struggled last time to transmit his, ch- his championship form into the Premier League, but maybe with a second bite of the cherry, he can do a little bit better. And they have Max Ahrens, who's a really good player. And then they have they have a couple of young Irish players, including Cork's Adamida, who... Uh, who, look, who looks like uh, he has some big potential. So hopefully he can get more opportunities to uh, to press his claim and, and to improve. Uh, in the other game today, in the first game in the playoffs, uh, Bournemouth beat Brentford 1-0. So, you know, 
Bournemouth could be in with a shout of, of, of coming back up with, without Eddie Howe this time. And uh, the other game is actually it's on now is Barnsley and Swansea. Neil all. I wouldn't actually mind Swansea coming up because I think it's a bit of a, an oddity having a Welsh team in the Premier League. It's it's something a little bit strange. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were good value the last time they were up. They obviously won the League Cup under Michael Laudrup and they were always a club that played nice, attractive possession football. And uh, with Steve Cooper, who was the England coach that won the Under-17 World Cup with that generation of like Jaden Sancho and Rian Brewster, they have a coach now that kind of preaches that same kind of philosophy. So I think maybe I'd like to see Swansea come up. Alameda actually went to my secondary school in, in Cork. You know, now, following in your footsteps and, you know, exactly, dominate, yeah. dominating football in different spheres. <laughs> um, from the Segunda, Sam, who do you reckon could make a splash next season? Uh, I mean, Mallorca, I started in Mallorca, Espanyol kind of really, you know, stormed the title, didn't they? Do you reckon that they could be a bit of a force next season? I mean, they're always uh, too big for the Segunda, weren't they? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Espanyol, I think this is only the second season in their history that they've been in Segunda, and last time they got relegated, they went straight back up, and this time, the same thing again, and they pretty much walked Segunda, but I think it has been good for them to kind of rejuvenate their squad. they got some of the high-earning, not-so-great players, and they've given chances to young lads, so I think it'll be interesting to see how they do. I wouldn't expect them to kick on big time and be challenging for Europe or anything like that, but I think they'll take a season of kind of mid-table. And then I think Mallorca, the other team coming up again, relegated last season. I think they've kind of been able to lay some more stable foundations. Last time they came up to, to Primera, they, they just had a double promotion from Segunda B to Segunda to La Liga. And then last season relegated back to Segunda, now promoted back again to Primera. I think this season they've kind of taken stock and kind of put some more stable foundations in to say, like, where do we want to be? How are we going to establish ourselves? And to really kind of capitalise on that. And then I think the team that come up in the playoffs, they're always at a huge disadvantage because of how late the Segunda playoffs are going way into June. I think the only side that would really be able to have a shot next season would be Leganes just because they were in Primera last season, because they have a bit more money available to them. El Maria, they've got some, some Arab owners and they certainly have the money to spend to adjust to Primera, but they're also a bit of a chaotic club who change managers every five minutes almost. So I wouldn't fancy them to be too impressive. And then Sporting and Girona, another two teams who who have been in Primera not so long ago, but again, kind of lacking that that quality to really have an impact on Primera, I'd reckon. And there's a bit of uh, Lega bias there, Sam. I know you like going to their games and stuff. I love Lega, I mean, they're great. Yeah. And their mascot's are a cucumber. So what more can you ask for? Pepino, no? Super Pepino. He's not just cucumber, he's a super cucumber. <laughs> um, so yeah, guys, uh, just to finish up on moments of the week, uh, for my moments of the week, it has to be Suarez, just the whole, like, I got the feeling that it was like every indignity he suffered, you know, when he was called fat, you know, last summer um, by sections of... Uh, Spanish football, you could say, European football, you know, pass it over the hill. And then for him to kind of fight back in that manner, kind of almost single-handedly win the game, was just incredible. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it, even though I'm not an Atletico fan by any means, but uh, I just found it to be incredible. And I hope that they finish the job next weekend. Uh, John, what was your moment of the week? I, I do have to ask you. I'm, I'm guessing I already know. 
Well, yeah, I think top of the list is obviously Allison's goal against uh, West Brom because it's a goalkeeper scoring a goal. What more context needs to be added? Um, but then second, obviously Leicester winning the FA Cup. Like it's so rare that you see a first anymore in football with just a few teams always dominating. So for so so for them to do that, and especially in the context of you know the owner's family and the troubles they've been through in recent times, I think it was a lovely moment for everybody associated with that club. I'd have to go with a specific part of Leicester winning the um, FA Cup. Uh, ha- uh, sorry, um, Hamza Chowdhury with the Palestinian flag going around um, celebrating was a really heartwarming moment. Um, you don't get many South Asian players in, in playing top tier football, and also him first of all and the kind of work he's doing outside off the pitch, but also um, just reminding every, everyone about current affairs um, going on at the moment was a really nice heartwarming moment while he was celebrating. Definitely. What's his background? Do you know? Um, he, I believe he's Bengali, but don't quote, quote me because I have an absolutely bad memory. I will just quickly check. And... <laughs> Yeah, John, you think you want to come in there, John? He's Bangladeshi and half Caribbean. I, I forget which Caribbean island it is, but uh, I remember having a football manager save and looking at his information. <laughs> that gives you, you know, those, those little five pictures. And yeah, he's he's half Bangladeshi, half... Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't exactly remember the Caribbean nation, but it's one of them. Grenada, yeah. Yeah, Grenada. Um, but yeah, Bengali, Grenadian, I- which is a class mix from... It's a very good mix. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> uh, John, that's two footman references you made in the show. That's a sign of a problem, I think. Getting, you're uh, getting a bit of an obsession there, I think, maybe. Too I think it's a solution. <laughs> uh, Sam, what's your mum's of the week? Again, I guess you have two as a kind of someone with sympathies to both. Yeah, well, it has to be a letting. But then my other one, um, another one from La Liga, would be Take Kuba, the, the Japanese sensation. He's been out on loan from Real Madrid this season. He was at Villarreal, which didn't really work out. Then he's gone to Atafe and again, hasn't really worked out either. But he came on as a sub at the weekend and Atafe needed to win to guarantee survival and he scored in the 84th minute. Great finish. And I've never seen anybody look as angry to have scored as, as Take Kuba. He went kicking the advertising hoardings pushing away his teammates he was furious and <laughs> it was hard to see kind of where the rage was coming from it was just all that pent-up frustration that you can just kind of look at this guy who's a, a teen sensation in japan a, a brilliant footballer and you're watching him on tv kind of saying yeah i kind of understand that all that frustration coming out in one go it just kind of makes him human i think that was one of the great moments of the the battle against relegation in la liga definitely 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 but that's all for today guys thanks so much for joining me uh, just quick social drop. Mine is at Azulfili. John? Yeah, at Notorious JOS on Twitter. Sam? At Sam Leverage. Jasmine? At underscore Jasmine Baba. Perfect. Um, pleasure having you all, guys. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the chat. We'll see you back next week for the final episode. Well, the penultimate episode of the league season, the domestic season. And uh, if you listen, listeners enjoyed this show, please share and rate and spread the word and we'll see you soon thanks guys